was that with like a power outage in the middle of our recording? It's weird. So like, I thought it was like a power surge, but I thought so too, but we haven't done both sides where we are not in this for those listening. We are not in the same room together. Um, that would be too much. We're not even in the same building. We're together. not even in the same. Yeah. It's we're, we're, quite a ways away. So yeah, I thought it was on my end. You thought it was on your end, but it was actually like a common power outage, I think for like a split second. So we had to go with some backup audio for this podcast. So for most of this podcast, Marcus, your audio is going to be less good. So sorry about that. Well, less, less good is less good from like transcendent and excellent is actually still pretty good. Right. still pretty good. So just to like people listening, like do not adjust your audio device. And you're not doing it to me purposefully. You're not making me sound bad. No, it's uh, this is not me um, like trying to make diminish you relative to me. Because to be clear for the listener, I do no work whatsoever in editing this. This is all on on Professor Kaplow. So if I sound bad, it, it's it's his fault. But because I use better audio stuff on my end, right? My audio was saved perfectly despite the power outage. But but yours, we have to go with this like backup version. So that's why you're going to sound. Not great for for most of this thing. So just, you know, letting you know. And so for that, I apologize. I blame Virginia Dominion, not a sponsor. (laughs) Although we're open, honestly. Call call us. Call us. us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an associate professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Uh... I'm not doing well. I, I find that the topic that we're about to talk about today uh, is very depressing. And um, I think the the recent events that we've seen have just been, you know, very traumatic and awful. And so while I'm normally, you know, quite happy to be doing this podcast and talking about, you know, sometimes the things that we talk about are not uh, particularly nice. Uh, it's It saddens me that we have to talk about what we're about to talk about today. Is that why you were 10 minutes late for this for this podcast? I was only, I think I was seven or eight minutes late, but I had another, I had another commitment, which explains. Also, I had put this in the calendar on the wrong time. Okay, fair enough. We've, so by popular demand, I think we, we need to talk about the war in Israel. Thank you to all those who reached out to tell us they would like to hear our take on this issue. You know, we had on the schedule, what I think we, maybe next time we can talk about this, but the pandas at the Washington Zoo are being returned to China. For those not aware, the National Zoo, which is located in Washington, D.C., has had pandas for years and years and years, and um, they are returning to China in December. And as of now, there are no replacement pandas joining us um, at the National Zoo. And so we've seen this kind of outpouring of care and concern and, and celebrating the pandas for their time here. And like, I wonder what the diplomatic angles associated with the re- revocation of pandas from, from America are. And, you know, we talked about like, uh, sports washing and green washing and like I wonder if zoo washing is going to be is going to be a thing that we that we could discuss maybe for maybe for the next podcast. I wish we could talk about that t- that today. Zoo yeah. zoo diplomacy and you know pandas are adorable. Yeah, animal exchanges. Yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, the war the war in Israel. So uh, I'm not going to go over the the facts of of what happened. Just a horrible terrorist attack from uh, Hamas fighters infiltrating from Gaza into Israel and uh, killing and and taking hostage a number of civilians. There's plenty out there uh, that kind of goes over the facts of the case. 
I want to kind of start just with like a, a few words about mental health in times of, of war and conflict. Um, and this is something that I talked about with students a lot when the Ukraine war kind of first started. But I think it's important for um, the student listeners, especially to know that it's okay to turn off the feed for a few minutes every once in a while. And there are some horribly disturbing Im images and videos that are kind of coming across the transom. And, and for our students who are very online, it can be a lot. And I think for some people, and I kind of count myself uh, among these people, you almost feel guilty not paying attention. Like, like someone has to kind of bear witness to the, to the horrible events that are going on in the world. And um, so I want to give permission to anyone listening to this that you can, you can turn off the X or Twitter or Facebook or wherever you're getting these images and videos. One article a day in the New York Times is fine, right? Like you don't need to, you don't need to bathe in it because it, it can be very damaging to, to your own mental health to uh, kind of be seeing these things. And you, you don't have to do it. There are plenty of people paying attention. The world is bearing witness. So you, you don't have to do that yourself. So um, in case anyone is in that situation, I think it can sometimes be good to kind of stop watching for a few minutes. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I do the same thing myself, actually, that there's only I think just, you know, sort of cognitively and emotionally, too, like there's only so much that the the brain can kind of handle, uh, especially when it's when it's on this type of topic and the, the visual imagery. And so sometimes just unplugging uh, for a little bit and letting things process can be very, very helpful. So I, I completely agree with what you said. So there are a lot of things we can talk about here, Marcus. Um, I think we want to get to kind of the broader picture. Should we say up front that the Cheap Talk podcast is um, anti-terrorism? That our, our official view? I think that's fair. I think that's the official view of the Cheap Talk podcast. Yeah. Anti-terrorist. I think one of the, the most difficult parts in talking about this or, or any um, uh, conflict war, um, but it's, it's particularly true in this particular instance because it's been going on for so long, is that, that it's often the innocent civilians that, that lose, right? So whether you think about um, this conflict in terms of like territorial demands, you think about, you know, sovereignty, you think about religious disputes, whatever, whatever you sort of look, look to as your sort of way of explaining what's going on between Israel and Palestine. At the end of the day, you know, it's it's civilians and, and innocents who often are, you know, losing their lives and are are injured or they're become refugees. Um, and I think that's really the the sort of most heartbreaking, you know, part of all this. If it was just, you know, soldiers dying, you could say, okay, this is this is war. I understand that. You know, sometimes nations have to go to war for whatever reason. But in, in a conflict where you're seeing, you know, the, the vast majority of people killed being civilians, it's just, it's just, you know, heartbreaking. It's very difficult to, to deal with. Yeah. So I, I think we want to talk kind of about, about the broader perspective here. But before we get into that, as a former intelligence person, um, there's been a lot of discussion among kind of my community and among the defense analysis community of this central question of how Israel let this happen. So this is just a massive intelligence and security failure on the part of Israel's defense forces, which are widely renowned as being excellent, right? At being um, uh, excellent at defending Israel, having a, an intelligence network that makes this kind of thing pretty much unthinkable. And it failed miserably in this, in this case with a tragic result. Maybe we can start with this question of, of how Israel let this happen. I think this is a multifaceted issue, and maybe we can touch on some of the dynamics that might have made uh, this particular moment, uh, one where Israel's forces were particularly weak in, in being able to defend against this sort of terrorist attack. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'll just mention uh, one that I, I think isn't getting 
as much play in the in in the press. Um, there's a lot of discussion about political dysfunction, and we can talk about that, um, and about problems kind of elsewhere that Israel's forces were focused on, particularly in the West Bank. But I think complacency is something that we should be discussing in the context of um, Israel's failures here. But I, I should say, before we get too far into this, that you know there will be kind of a reckoning in Israel with the leadership that allowed this to happen. And I think that's starting a little bit in some circles, but there is a an understanding now among the Israeli kind of political lead and, and foreign policy and defense types that, that this is not the time to have that conversation in Israel's uh, kind of political life, um, because this is a country gearing up for war. And we'll talk more about that. And, and that's a country at war um, and gearing up for um, maybe a, a long struggle here, a long conflict. And so, you know, our discussion of it is not necessarily the same thing as saying that Israel ought to be having this discussion right now, that this is maybe something that, that can wait until their security situation has stabilized a little bit. Um, but just to go back to the idea of complacency here, Part of uh, what might be going on is that Israel is maybe a little bit of a victim of its own success in the sense that there was so much faith or trust in the intelligence apparatus to have advance notice of a major incursion like this from Gaza that it almost becomes the kind of thing that, well, we know we would have advance notice of it, so we don't need to posture our forces in order to defend against it. That is the kind of um, sense of the capabilities of Israel among Israeli security services is so great that they almost uh, hurt their own readiness with with that kind of view. Yeah, Jeff, I actually uh, completely agree. And, and I was telling my class that I think one of the things that happens in these situations is because, you know, you don't you don't have uh, any major terrorist attacks for, for a while. Things, you know, are relatively calm. Uh, a sense of complacency, you know, starts to develop a little bit. But also, crucially, this this attack, I think, in some ways was was very different than what Israel had been used to to seeing, which is, you know, rockets launched from from Gaza. This was an attack on a kibbutz that was like a mile or two, you know, from the from the Gaza border. And so um, that that type of attack, I think, was not necessarily anticipated. The other thing that I that I, I thought of, and I, I'm curious to get your take, Jeff, is, you know, oftentimes when these attacks happen, uh, U.S. intelligence services uh, sort of know about it or or they have some type of warning that something is likely to occur. The, the current evidence, and it's been you know only a few days, but the current evidence suggests that the U.S. also did not see this coming. Uh, and some people connected the dots to suggest that this means that this is uh, very much a Hamas um, sort of isolated incident in the sense that Iran, for example, was not providing support of any kind. Uh, was not providing sort of logistics. If they were, either Israeli or U.S. intelligence likely would have picked up on it. Uh, and so the fact that they didn't, again, if that's true, might imply that Iran actually was not uh, behind this. Now, there's other evidence that suggests that maybe they they had something to do with this. But the, I think the fact that that there was the intelligence services did not pick this up might also imply something about the scope of of the operation. I wanted to kind of get your sense of of that. Yeah, well, we should talk about Iran, um, I think, in, in more depth. But I, the the initial reporting we're getting and statements from U.S. officials are that their intelligence suggests that Iran was surprised by this uh, this attack, um, which, you know, I guess would go to the idea that with Iran not having had advanced knowledge, if that's true, and again, early days, we don't know for sure, uh, but if Iran didn't have knowledge and, and the United States is maybe better postured against Iran in terms of its intelligence capabilities than it is against Hamas, then that might be one reason why there wasn't advanced notice in that way. 
But but I will say that the intelligence failure here on the part of Israel is significant because Israel is postured against Hamas. Israel's intelligence would have expected to know that there was an operation of this scale that was being that was being planned. You know, I guess we should separate or the the idea of an intelligence failure from the idea of, an, of a security failure, because there's kind of two layers of protection for Israel from this sort of a terrorist attack. Um, one is intelligence and advanced knowledge, and it, it's clear that Israel has a kind of very significant intelligence apparatus in Gaza and the West Bank um, designed to give them advance warning of this sort of thing. So what I was saying earlier is is mostly that the strength of that intelligence uh, apparatus has allowed the security apparatus, the second line of defense, to kind of not be at full readiness because everyone's so confident that they would have advance notice. But what's supposed to happen is if intelligence fails, if Israel doesn't get advance notice through its intelligence capabilities, then there's a whole nother layer of security that's supposed to stop a terrorist attack like this from occurring. And that also failed here. And so I think these kinds these things are interrelated. And, you know, part of it may have had to do with the way the uh, Hamas operation proceeded. So there were rocket attacks initially. The Israeli response to rocket attacks is to shelter in bases um, that prevented from uh, Israeli security forces from understanding the extent to which Hamas forces had kind of moved out of Gaza. Um, that then led to the series of terrorist attacks in, in the among civilians bordering Gaza. So I think these, this is kind of a two-layered problem. Be, beyond the kind of complacency that led to this, you know, there, there's been some talk about how in recent months and even years, uh, Israeli forces have paid much more attention to the West Bank um, in terms of potential attacks. And so it may be that Israeli forces at this time were postured incorrectly for the threat, right, that they were focused more um on the West Bank, it was a holiday. Um, and so some forces were potentially not at full readiness for that reason. And then we should talk about political dysfunction, because last week on this podcast, I um, proclaimed that U.S. political dysfunction was not sufficient for any adversary to look at it and say, hey, now is the time to strike. Um, and I think the same cannot be said of Israel and its political dysfunction. And I think this is a strong element of the story that Israel, for those who have not been paying attention to this, has been undergoing um, a series of just, you know, failure to to have a functioning government, revisions to the uh, the role of the judiciary and the society that have led to protests and calls by reservists not to not to serve in the military. Um, allegations that the uh, Netanyahu administration in Israel was ignoring the complaints of military forces that they were not at full readiness. Netanyahu's administration felt that those complaints were motivated more by political interests in the military rather than the reality on the ground. So we have a lot of these factors going on in the in the Israeli polity, in the in the country itself, that may have led observers to say, you know what, this is not a country that's capable of defending itself in the same way that that it has previously. Yeah, I think all of those. I mean, as as you know, is often the case. I think there's multiple uh, factors that that go in here, and I, I I think clearly all of the ones that you listed are are part of this. There was intelligence failures uh, in Gaza, presumably, you know, both sort of human intelligence, uh, the actual people that they have on the ground in Gaza who are, have sort of an ear uh, out trying to trying to hear things and figure out what might be happening, signals intelligence, 
you know, whether it's it's thinking about um, intercepting phone calls, metadata, whatever, uh, imagery, satellite imagery. I mean, you know, this was a, a situation where very quickly it seems like Hamas, you know, so it was able to amass bulldozers and things like that to get through the fencing uh, that separates, you know, Gaza. Um, all of that seems to be a failure. And I think if you if you combine that with uh, what some people have argued, I think, is an over reliance maybe on Iron Dome, like the the this gets back to what I was saying yeah. before, where the complacency comes because if you think about the threat as being primarily rockets uh, and missiles, then you have a solution uh, to that, the one that works pretty well. But if if the the position is then, well, if we if we're not going to use those, well, we can use this other method, bulldozers and you know motorcycles and cars and stuff like that to get through, then you're you're not you're not thinking about the threat in those terms. And so you've started thinking about the threat in, in missiles and rockets ways, and then grown complacent potentially in in other areas. I, I had a, a student though um, ask me a very interesting question, sort of related to this, uh, and it gets it gets to something that we've talked about on the podcast. I can't remember if it was the last one or the one before that, which is the um, and I'm sorry if I'm sort of jumping all you know all over the place, but the the sort of Saudi uh, Israel peace deal, the normalization of relations that uh, President Biden and others uh, have been very um, sort of keen to see uh, be created. One of the things that we talked about in this podcast was that it didn't seem like there was a plan necessarily uh, for the the sort of Palestinians to be brought into that agreement, whatever it was going to look like, right? So a normalization um, agreement between Saudi Arabia and Israel would be great for uh, lots of people in Israel, be great for lots of people in Saudi Arabia. But there was a still lingering question of, well, what what is what's going to happen with respect to the Palestinians? Is there going to be anything in that deal with respect to the West Bank, Gaza, uh, Jerusalem, whatever? The hard questions that often you know kind of are the ones that get the last attention because of the hardest to deal with in a lot of these different accords and, and treaties that have been signed over the years. So there was that question. Um, and then Netanyahu would come out a couple of weeks ago in September and said that it, it was not, I think the, the phrase was like, it was not likely that there'd be, you know, sort of anything about the Palestinians in this, in this deal. So a, a very bright student asked me, well, you know, if, if, if Jeff and Marcus can anticipate that the Palestinians might not be happy with a Saudi uh, Israel deal shouldn't it have been on the uh, the radar of the Israelis that some type of attack might be likely during this period as a way for uh, Hamas to signal its dissatisfaction with the idea of of Saudi Arabia and Israel having a normalization agreement. Um, and I think that's a great point. I, I don't know what the answer to that is, but I do think that one way to think about maybe what the 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 why and the when of this attack has to relate to that deal that was you know getting closer to being finalized between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Should the United States or should the should is the Israelis should the IDF have anticipated some type of response from the Palestinians, given that it was likely to be the case that the Palestinians were not going to be happy with that deal? Do you have a, a take on that? I, again, I think that this is a multi-causal question and, and answer. So we can kind of shift to this question of, of why now? Why this type of attack? Um, why did Hamas decide to push forward with this attack now? So why now? So there, this is, again, I think a multi-causal kind of uh, an argument. I already mentioned maybe Israel's perceived weakness from a political dysfunction standpoint. Hamas is a political actor in the Gaza Strip and among kind of Palestinian politics that is in a long-term tension with the Palestinian Authority that is in charge in the West Bank for the kind of hearts and minds of the Palestinian people. And so there's often this kind of push and pull of uh, how do these organizations show their people that they are the strongest and the toughest um, and best equipped to fight uh, on behalf of their citizens. And so, you know, we we're at a point where 
you know, maybe politically some analysts think it, it made sense for Hamas to take action. Uh, but I think you're right to point to the broader regional dynamics here, because it's not just the Saudi Arabia-Israel normalization effort that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. This is part of a broader softening in the greater Middle East toward Israel and, and countries kind of being more willing to deal with Israel. And uh, that's to the exclusion of the issue of uh, the Palestinians, right? So when we talked about the Saudi Arabia discussions, I kind of cavalierly said that Saudi Arabia doesn't care about the Palestinians. So they'll pay lip service to this, the idea of finding a solution, right? But but they're not going to let that stand in the way of an agreement um, that benefit, benefits them. And I think that that's right. I think that's still right. And I think uh, Hamas knows that's right. And so one reason that they might want to conduct this kind of terrorist attack now, even though the consequences will be immense, is to torpedo those kinds of deals, because it's going to be much harder in an environment where Israel is at war with occupying potentially Gaza for um, other countries to normalize relations with it, other countries with significant populations that care about the Palestinian issue. So it's while it's not true that Saudi Arabia's government, I think, cares much about the Palestinian issue, it is an issue that resonates with the Arab public. And so countries that have populations that care about this have to care as well about the optics of agreements with Israel. So I think this does make an, a, a wider kind of regional relationships with Israel much trickier when Israel's engaged in an active war with uh, with Hamas. Um, and we can talk more about, you know, what's next for Israel in terms of its military actions here. No, I think that's I think that's all right. I think, you know, it's it's about this broader uh, sort of movement in the Middle East for for countries to sort of have more kind of normalized relations with Israel. And, and there's often a sense that the Palestinians kind of get left out of that um, conversation or those or those processes. I think it's also um to remember too, and you you sort of alluded to this that the Palestine we talk about the Palestinians as if they're you know sort of like a, a unitary actor, but the differences between how you know the West Bank is uh, sort of run and and the self governance that takes place there is very different than the way it happens in, in Gaza with Hamas. So the the PLO the the organization that um, is sort of you know r- runs the the Palestinians in the West Bank is recognized by like the United Nations as a um, actual governing entity, it's legitimate. Uh, Hamas, that that governs, uh, you know, Gaza, is recognized as a terrorist group by, you know, so most Western Western powers. And I think a part of the complication here is that the 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 sort of fight or the conflict between those two groups, the sort of like, you know, who's going to represent the Palestinian people, sort of writ large, uh, complicates complicates matters, you know, greatly because you have a situation where there might be difference of opinion and, and in some cases like vastly different uh sets of opinions about how to move forward the the palestinian position where the plo is much more likely to engage in diplomacy and talks and negotiations and hamas has resorted to uh attacks and so i think one of the things that complicates uh any type of discussion about what's going to happen to the palestinians you know in sort of you know the, the the broader sense is that these divisions that are you know between the west bank and gaza make it a very difficult kind of coordination problem for the palestinians to 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 work because they have to try to speak with one voice, but they can't really do so given the way that they're you know separated both physically but also ideologically uh, in the way that they're they're governed. Let's talk about the wider regional dynamics here. We you know we talk a little bit about the 
normalization talks between Saudi and and Israel. But we should, let's talk about Iran in the context here, because it's, it's been in the news a lot. I mean, one of the things that people immediately said uh, when these attacks happened is, oh, Iran must be must be behind these attacks. And as I mentioned, I mean, the, the U.S. officials who are talking about this as of yet don't have any kind of smoking gun that shows Iran uh, helped to coordinate or had advanced knowledge even of this of this attack, although it wouldn't be crazy to think that they had advanced knowledge, given the relationship of Iran to these to these entities. In recent years, we've seen a tighter relationship between Iran and Hamas, including um, the provision of arms to Hamas in Gaza from Iran. And that's the pathway that I think everyone is kind of focusing on. How is this how is it possible this happened? Well, one reason Hamas was able to conduct this operation was because of outside support from entities like Iran. Um, and so that's kind of where Iran figures into the picture. What do you think are the bigger kind of regional dynamics uh, associated with this war in Israel? Okay, so I, I think there's a, a couple different things that are that are going on. The one that you uh, talked about, the sort of relationship between Iran and Hamas, is important. I mean, it's it's widely believed that you know Iran provides financial uh, support for Hamas. They provide military support uh, for Hamas. And by the way, I, I want to talk before the end of this podcast. I want to talk about how you understand. Uh, those weapons and and things get to Gaza because I think one of the interesting things if anybody's ever been I've been to Israel uh, I've gone to the the Gaza Strip and I've seen sort of like how locked down it is and you know how difficult it is by air by sea by land to get things in and out and it's it's purposefully but you know controlled by Israel that way the checkpoints are very uh, severe I'm curious just uh, from a practical sense from you if you if you have thoughts on how uh, Gaza and Hamas actually get these weapons because I think it's it's an interesting question but in any event. So I, I think Iran uh, certainly uh, supports Hamas. I think there's good good evidence that recently, as you know, yeah. uh, there's been a high level of support. What was interesting though was like almost immediately Iran came out and said no, right? They said you know this was this was not us. We did not uh, we did not do this. Now maybe you might say, well, you know, of course they're going to say that. What, what advantage is there to saying that they they supported uh, this attack unless they really want to create some some broader uh, regional conflict? But I, I found it you know they were so quick to do so. Um, and they wanted to clarify, I think, to the United States and, and you know, Western powers, no, this was, you know, this was not us, right? So before you you, you sort of think about, you know, potentially doing anything uh, to us, know that we didn't have anything to, to, to do with this. I thought it was pretty quick. Right. But in, in the same statement, though, Marcus, the Iranian officials are supporting yeah. this attack, right? So let's, let's not just make it, just make it sound no, no, like, no. like Iran like condemned to this. They, the no, Iranian, no, 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 Iranian no. officials no. did not condemn this. Now, the Iranian people, which we should always distinguish from Iranian officials, the Iranian people in, in many cases have condemned this kind of a terrorist attack, but the Iranian government did not. Right. They did not condemn it, uh, but they said we didn't do it. We didn't, right. we didn't, we didn't, we didn't. It wasn't us, right. but yeah. It wasn't us. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I guess... You know, the, the question is, if you if you believe that it was them, um, you think that, you know, Iran has something to do with this. The question would be sort of like, what is the motivation? What are they what are they trying to trying to do? Right. Um, and it could be as simple as, you know, trying to support Hamas because of what we we're just talking about, the the sort of Saudi uh, Israel deal. Iran, you know, might look at that and say, we don't like this at all. Yeah. We want to uh, exert some influence over that procedure or that process. One way to potentially derail that is to have a, a major terrorist attack. Get Israel, you know, sort of embroiled in, uh, you know, a land invasion in Gaza. Um, presumably, there's going to be a lot of public opinion that looks at that in the, in the Gulf countries and says, you know, maybe now is not the right time for this type of of deal. So, like, if your if your ultimate goal is to derail, you know, a deal like the uh, 
Saudi-Israel deal, you could see like how Iran's calculus might be, let's support Hamas and have this attack and that might accomplish uh, what we want to accomplish. Um, so I think there's a possibility that that's, that could be, you know, part of, of what's going on. Um, it just seems very risky to me, though, that, that if Iran was behind this or they were providing, you know, specific support for this, this attack, uh, to do it in such a way that they aren't going to be linked to it. You know, it seems like Iran doesn't know bef- if, if they were behind this, they didn't know beforehand that the IDF and, and, uh, the, the U.S. was not going to be able to, to sort of connect the dots and realize that it was it was them. They didn't know that the attack was going to be, you know, successful. You know, all there's all kinds of uncertainty going into it. So it seems kind of risky for Iran to uh want to engage in this without knowing what the outcome uh would be. Doesn't mean that they they didn't want to take that chance, but just means that to me it seems sort of risky to to engage in uh supporting Hamas in this. Even if Iran wasn't behind this attack, it stands to benefit from this attack in in some ways, right? And and you know one way is the kind of general lashing out at Israel, which Iran is always interested in doing, um, but also in kind of derailing these other agreements that that you talked about. I think one worry on the part of U.S. officials, if I can kind of shift to the U.S. perspective for a minute, is that an opportunistic Iran could take advantage of this situation to make things worse. And so that, I think, has been a focus of U.S. policy since, like, the the first uh, indication that this was going on is... Uh, the U.S. is in a position to deter Iran from additional, from following on to this attack, from engaging in its own direct aggression, and maybe even to deter Iran from providing sufficient support to Hezbollah that Hezbollah will feel it can engage in a more active way in this conflict. Because frankly, like Israel doesn't need another a, a conflict also on its northern border. It doesn't need a conflict also on the Syrian border as it tries to deal with its the security situation in Gaza. So the goal, I think, of U.S. policy in the region, and we've seen them move a carrier group uh, kind of closer to the area and make all kinds of statements. And as we speak, um, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is in the region and is going to Saudi Arabia next and is making the case that Everyone needs to support Israel in its operations. And for those who might be interested in causing additional trouble, back off, right? Like we are not going to, we're going to be there to support Israel. And part of that means if there's something else going on on the border that the U.S. will be there to, there to help. And I think a particular concern here is Hezbollah, which it's, I think it's less of an issue, less of a worry that Iran itself will engage in military action here, which would be a very big escalation and would likely bring the U.S. into the conflict. So I think that's much less likely, but uh, Iran feels like it can operate through Hezbollah with really no fear of retaliation against Iran directly. And so one worry here is, okay, Israel has been weakened. Israel is now distracted. Um, so let's have a, a war on the border with Lebanon as well. And we've seen some rocket fire, maybe the, the movement of um, a few Hezbollah fighters into Israel. Um, there's some talk of that. And we've seen Israel retaliate with its own missile fire, um, including into Syria, um, where some kind of branches of Hezbollah operate. There's the chance here that the northern border becomes also a war zone. And so I think the U.S. is in part trying to tamp down that risk through its actions in the region. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think just lastly on this, I mean, I'm I'm skeptical of the idea that Iran really wants to engage in a war with Israel at the moment. Like, I, I don't I don't. In my sense in, in in the region is that they might be unhappy about um, some of these you know deals that are that are occurring. I, th- I think I heard Shibli Talhami uh, on TV the other day talk about how you know for for the Iranians 
they might look at this and the Palestinians, I think, look at it this way, that, that the Middle East is sort of like a reshuffling of the deck is kind of occurring, right? In the sense that a lot of what you kind of knew to be true about, you know, who was sort of enemies with who and who had, uh, you know, good or bad relations, some of that's changing, you know, that's, that's, and, and we've alluded to this in, you know, several podcasts where it seems like, or it had seemed like for a while, um, you know, the, the Middle East was was a little bit more peaceful. You had more diplomacy occurring. You had more sort of normalization efforts. Um, you know, the Trump administration tried to do a, a peace deal. They didn't. They didn't get the full one that they wanted, but they I, you know, arguably made some some progress in the in the peace effort. So there had been this sense that like you know things on the ground were sort of were sort of shifting. Um, and you know, certainly if you don't like that shift, then you know, okay, this is a, this would be a good time to to you know sort of get engaged in, in a war. But my sense going into what happened on Saturday. I, I wasn't under the impression or, or the thought hadn't occurred to me that Iran would be looking for a war uh, with Israel at the moment or, or even, you know, through Hezbollah, let's say. So it's it's it, to me, it would be surprising if Iran, you know, was behind this fully uh, beyond the sort of general support that they give Hamas for, for you know, basically for that reason. Well, sure. But this kind of attack from Gaza wasn't on your radar either. You know, so I, I don't I mean, it was on none of our radars. And, and so I think that's part of what made it a possibility for, for yeah. Hamas to pull this off is that, that nobody saw this one coming. No, and I, I told my class. I mean, we we uh, we had ironically we had just discussed previously in my class the the UN resolution two forty two. You know, where there's that sort of after you know nineteen sixty seven this this clause where there's amb- ambiguity about what it, what it means. Like this treaty is like you know unclear because it says Israel must remove from territories to the territories, all territories, not really clear. And then the French version, of course, is a different. But anyway, so we were, we were talking about that on on Thursday. And then this happened on Saturday. It's like there was no, I had no conception that, you know, this was going to, you know, sort of occur out of the blue. Israel didn't either, obviously. Uh, and so you're right. Like, I, things can change very quickly in international politics. And the fact that I didn't anticipate it uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a reason to believe that Iran is not interested in having a war with Israel. Maybe they are. So I mentioned, you know, one thing the U.S. is doing is in the region is trying to deter Iran um, and other potential actors who might want to get involved here. Um, but the other thing the U.S. is doing that, that the administration has talked about is providing support directly to Israel um, in terms of military equipment. The kind of two biggest needs here are missiles and uh, missile interceptors. So, um, yeah, you mentioned earlier Iron Dome, which is Israel's uh, version of missile defense, covers uh, kind of short-range um, short-range missiles that are launched at, at Israel and and missile interceptors are, you know, what makes Iron Dome work. And so the provision of those from the United States, in addition to kind of more offensive ammunition, is what, what's been talked about. And so the U.S. is a, a big military supporter of Israel. So there's kind of an annual allotment of military support for Israel that comes from the United States. And in addition to that, there are pre-positioned stocks of military equipment in Israel provided by the United States that are like there in case of emergency. So this is mm-hmm. this is stuff that has not kind of yet been transferred officially to Israel, but is already there in case something happens. And so it doesn't require an act of Congress right now, which is impossible for reasons we could discuss. But Congress need not pass a bill that says aid to Israel for there to be aid given to Israel because of the way the kind of pipeline of uh, provisions of aid is structured in when it comes to Israel. So there's stuff already there. Israel can have it. And we are accelerating the timeline for giving that stuff to Israel so that they can prosecute this um, this war. Jeff, do you have a sense, uh, getting back to my question earlier about how Hamas is able to get all these uh, weapons in the first place and how they enter Gaza? 
So I'm not an expert in this by any means, but my understanding is that there is a network of, of tunnels um, under Gaza that go through to Egypt. And the Egyptian government, we can talk about the role of Egypt here, um, but the Egyptian government has has been working hard to kind of stop smuggling into into Gaza over over recent years. But it's clear that this stuff gets through in addition to people getting through, getting getting in and out. Uh, I think that's one way. There is the production within Gaza of mm-hmm. military equipment. And uh, that's something that it's much harder for outside parties to to monitor and deal with because Gaza is embargoed, but it is not a it, it's not like a, an area that Israeli forces can easily go in and and deal with um, this kind of stuff. Uh, they can conduct airstrikes, but in terms of having like boots on the ground in Gaza, we ha- uh, Israel hasn't had that um, in some time. So the domestic production of equipment is harder to to deal with. Yeah. I think we need to talk also about Israel's response to the terrorist attack. And so we've seen, you know, Israel at first kind of struggle to regain control of the areas bordering Gaza. And then after that control was reestablished, we've seen a kind of mass mobilization, quickest mobilization of, of reserves in Israeli history, hundreds of thousands of reserves called up beefing up the the military forces. And we've seen an extensive bombing campaign against Gaza. As we record Thursday, Israel has not yet conducted a ground campaign against Gaza, but I think many analysts kind of see that as the next thing that's going to happen, that Israel is going to kind of enter with with ground troops Gaza, and that this bombing campaign is in part preparation for that next phase of the conflict, um, which could lead to an Israeli occupation of Gaza. And it bears saying, I think, that the bombing campaign against Gaza is a uh, uh, tough business because Gaza is a very densely populated area. What do we say? Like about twice the size of Washington D.C., but with with three times the population. Mm-hmm. And and of that population um, of two million or so, uh, about half are children. And so the bombing campaign, you know, no matter how well targeted those cam- that campaign is against against uh, Hamas, it will inevitably kill and injure civilians who are not associated with this terrorist group or with the terrorist attack that occurred there. So it's just a, a kind of tragic. No, I think a lot of analysts um, and myself included are expecting over the next uh, few days or, or a few weeks, a um, uh, incursion into, into Gaza by Israeli forces. And I think it's, it's for two different reasons. So one, one of the, aspects of this is that there are uh, believed to be hostages who might still be alive uh, in Gaza. And so Israel wants to try to retrieve retrieve them if they have intelligence or knowledge about where they are. And the best way to do that, I think, is to uh, have uh, soldiers on the ground carry those out. The other problem is Gaza, you know, as we've talked about, is an, is an incredibly small uh, piece of land, but it's very densely populated and they have, you know, high rise buildings and they have, you know, apartment buildings, stuff like that. What happens is when Israel uh, engages in, in uh, sort of missile attacks in Gaza, unfortunately, the, the I think, unavoidable problem is that you end up hitting areas where civilians live, and that becomes very tragic. The UN and, and others have drawn attention to the plight of civilians in Gaza and called for humanitarian corridors um, that could allow refugees to to leave Gaza um, or for aid to reach them to help civilians who are trapped in uh, in this conflict. 
And, you know, part of the issue here is there, there's nowhere for anyone to go in, in Gaza. So Egypt has largely cut off the, um, the one exit route from Gaza that's not to Israel. And Egypt has basically said that while it, it, it feels for the civilians who are, who are stuck in, in Gaza, it is not willing to risk its own security to allow people to get out. And I mean, you know, so Hamas is a, a long ago offshoot of a movement called the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood um, may be familiar to some listeners because the previous administration in Egypt um, the the one free election that Egypt has had in in in, in memory um, led to the election of a president who was um, associated with the Muslim Brotherhood, who was then deposed a year later by the current Egyptian regime. Right. So the so there these are not again these are not natural allies, and there's a concern in Egypt that okay, what we're letting in are are Hamas fighters who are going to um, conduct operations from Egyptian soil, which would be bad for Egypt. In addition, you know, caring for refugees and, and helping refugees is uh, always a, a drain on resources as well. So um, so Egypt has not been like a refuge for civilians trying to to get out of the way. I mean, you know, Israel issued a notice to, to Gazan civilians, you should get out because there is going to be bombing and, and it's just not clear where, where anyone can go um, to, to get away from the conflict. Yeah. I, and I, you know, that part is obviously tragic. How there's if you're in, if you're in Gaza at the moment and you're a civilian and you just you're trying to leave but there's no place to go. I mean that's that's a brutal situation. I mean I think the other aspect that that's important to talk about with with Egypt in particular though is that you know Egypt has played uh, a very sort of important role in Israel's history in the sense of being the first Arab country that actually had a deal uh, with with Israel, the Camp David Accords, in 1978. Uh, which didn't address the, the Palestinian issue, unfortunately, but they, they did, you know, give the Sinai back to Egypt um, and has over time been sort of a, a state that's played like a little bit of a mediation role uh, between uh, the Palestinian causes and, and Israel. And so if, if there's a if you if you're looking for sort of bright spots or the potential for countries to step in to try to to have some type of, of negotiation or some type of mediation or some type of diplomacy, one of those uh, countries may indeed be Egypt. So the, despite the fact that they don't want a, a sort of refugee crisis on their uh, on their border, um, it might be the case that they are you know one of the entities that will be part of of a mediation if that if that does occur. Um, but so yeah, I mean Egypt's Egypt's you know sort of got a complicated relationship. Uh, with Israel generally, but then the fact that Gaza is it's literally on its border, you know, they they take these you know security concerns very very seriously because it's you know it's a potential for a sort of mass exodus from Gaza into Egypt, which they don't they won't be able to control uh, and and you know present security issues for them. Maybe we can talk about what this means for the wider international system and international security writ large. One of the things we had. Uh, that that keeps kind of coming up in news reports is the question of how aid to Israel from the United States impacts aid to Ukraine for its continued prosecution of the uh, war with Russia. So some have asked, will will the fact that the U.S. is providing aid to Israel now affect future aid to, to Ukraine? And in some sense, these things do not overlap. So U.S. officials have said that uh, the U.S. will continue to provide support to, to Ukraine and that it is not impacted by aid to Israel. Um, and in a sense, that, that's 
true because the kinds of things that Ukraine needs are not or that it gets are not the kinds of things that Israel is getting when in terms of aid from the United States. So there's no sense in which the U.S. will run out of a particular widget by giving it to Israel rather than Ukraine. However, there is a sense in which aid may be impacted for Ukraine, and that is the ability and willingness of the U.S. Congress to continue to provide support for Ukraine, even as it's asked to provide support for Israel, uh, a closer or kind of historical ally of the United States. So right now, as everyone knows, U.S. Congress is not really able to do anything, um, given the lack of a speaker in the House as we, as we speak. Maybe that will change by the time this is released. But, you know, assuming the House is once again able to pass legislation, uh, there, there may be a sense in which the appetite for continued aid uh, from the United States to others prosecuting their own conflicts um, will, will wane. And I think if, if it does, it will wane for Ukraine first before Israel. That is, Congress will be more willing to give aid to Israel if they have to cut something. Um, so I think the United States has kind of made statements trying to reassure Ukraine that it can expect continued support. And um, hopefully that will be true. But um, there is there is this issue kind of down the road. The fact is the House, the U.S. House, uh, seemed disinclined generally to provide aid to Ukraine going forward. And I don't think this will help with that with that case. I think that's right. I mean, I think the other thing to keep in mind, too, is that, you know, Ukraine and you know Israel are, are very different politically uh, in the United States in the sense that you know, a lot of uh, the Republicans who are sort of getting a little bit uh, frustrated with the aid to Ukraine uh, will likely have very different views when it comes to supporting Israel. So I think that that creates a sort of a unique situation where, you know, they're they're If I'm if I'm Zelensky, I'm, I'm probably a little bit worried about the sort of appetite of Congress to continue. And I, I was worried before the attack on Saturday, but, yeah. you know, I'm worried about the, the uh, continued support for uh, for Ukraine. And I might worry that if attention is going to uh, shift somewhere, it might be that, you know, for at least some Republicans, and maybe some Democrats, too, they view supporting Israel uh, as, as a more important priority for U.S. national security interests than v- for supporting uh, Ukraine. So if it, we get down to a situation where it's sort of one or the other, uh, if I'm Zelensky, I'm a little bit worried about that. But I agree with everything that you said. Uh, I'm not I'm not too uh, concerned at the moment. The other country, though, I, I, I did want to talk about a little bit uh, is China. Because one of the interesting things that that came out um, after the attack was so so just as a sort of backdrop, China has been um, sort of attempting, I think, to play a, a larger role in the Middle East. That we've seen some efforts uh, by China to engage in you know diplomacy and some you know here and there sort of like mediation efforts. And there's there has been a sense that you know China might be trying to displace uh, the United States a little bit, who's sort of you know been one of the anchors in terms of the you know so-called great powers in, in the Middle East, um, trying to sort of chip away maybe at some of that some of that influence. So naturally, when the attack happened over the weekend, uh, China had to make a, a statement. And I, I can pull it up here, but it was it was a very sort of uh, muted one. Yeah. Right. It wasn't it, it wasn't one that showed a lot of leadership. Uh, we can put it that way. It wasn't one where they came out and made a strong statement, uh, you know, against Hamas or or really said much of anything. Um, and I think to a lot of people watching this was maybe a little bit surprising because China had been trying to play play that role, but also might be another signal that you know China uh, has lots of different sort of interests around the world. Uh, certainly, it's done a lot in Africa. You know, certainly a lot in in Asia Pacific. Maybe the Middle East is not one of the areas where it's it's re- it really wants to sort of become in, embroiled and be you know uh, sort of playing a leadership role. 
And so I, I think that's an interesting sort of um, signaling of maybe what their their intentions are vis-a-vis Israel and, and, and the Palestinian cause. But I also think it, it means that if there is going to be some type of internationally driven uh, mediation here, some type of, of diplomatic approach, I don't see China taking a leadership position in that. I, I see it more driven by the United States and some of the regional uh, actors like Egypt, like we were just talking about. Um, so I, I think it's interesting that China, you know, has decided to to be fairly muted. And again, this could all change uh, next week if there's a ground invasion into Gaza. It might be that you know China comes out with a stronger statement or does something, you know, to provide military support or something along those lines. But for the moment, it seems like they're content to to just sort of take a, a, a sideline position uh, and not really you know draw any lines in the sand whatsoever. You know, I, Jeff, I'd be curious to get your take too. I had a student you know, sort of asked me, we talk a lot on the podcast about nuclear weapons and um, the role that they play in, in deterrence. And uh, and a student asked a, a very bright question, which is, you know, for all the talk of, of nuclear weapons and, and, you know, how much of a deterrent effect they are, it seems like when it comes to terrorism in particular, they don't do, they don't have the same type of, of effect, right? They're very good at preventing, you know, large scale, arguably very good at preventing large scale sort of, you know, world war types of conflict because no one wants to see mutually assured destruction and, and we get all that. But when it comes to, you know, terrorist attacks, when it comes to dealing with um, whether, you, you know, non-state actors, like in the case of September 11th, um, it, it's they, the value there is just not as, is not as high. Now, you know, Israel is believed to have nuclear weapons. Of course, they don't, you know, sort of get out there and, and announce that. But I, I just curious to get your take on, on you know, the deterrent effect of, of nuclear weapons or the lack thereof when it comes to you know what we're what we're seeing now, not just with with Hamas, but potentially Hezbollah, uh, maybe Iran. You know, do you have do you have a, a sense of of how we should think about this? Yeah, well, Israel does have nuclear weapons, right? Although they are not officially acknowledged. Um, so just to, to clarify that, nuclear weapons don't seem useful for deterring terrorists. In the defense of nuclear weapons, it's very hard to deter terrorism generally, right? So the question of deterring terrorism is its own thing, and maybe we we should talk about that. Uh, more generally in, in another pod. But but yeah, like it's clear that nuclear weapons are not going to be useful for deterring an entity like Hamas or Hezbollah. What they might be useful for, though, is deterring Iran. So when you get to the point where you are talking about a state-to-state conflict, um, there you can imagine ways in which uh, nuclear weapons could be used in, in a deterrence way. But um, when it comes to terrorism, not at all. I mean, Israel is clearly capable of leveling Gaza without nuclear weapons, right? Nuclear weapons are not um, the thing that's going to deter an entity like Hamas. And there's a sense in which terrorism is difficult to deter because one of the goals of terrorist groups is sometimes for the target to retaliate in a way that drives support into into its arms, right? And so there's kind of a, uh, a lot of political science work on the strategies of terrorism and why terrorists do what they do. And one argument made in, the, in that literature, and I'm thinking here of a, a piece called Strategies of Terrorism by, by Barb Walter and Andy Kidd, they talk about the strategy of provocation, this idea that by striking a target, what the terrorist wants is for that target to then retaliate in a way that makes the population that is being retaliated against it feel as if they must turn to the terrorist group for protection. And so it is possible that one of the things Hamas anticipated from this attack was that Israel would 
be compelled to respond either with uh, uh, the reaction we're seeing now in terms of airstrikes or with a ground invasion. And that then, you know, increases Hamas's level of control in, in the Gaza Strip or maybe among kind of the Palestinian um, population more generally. Uh, so uh, because of that, d- deterring terrorism is kind of, uh, um, you know, the, the more extreme the response, sometimes the happier the terrorists are. Right. So so the whole question of terrorist deterrence is is quite difficult. Marcus, I wanted to ask you as the expert in diplomacy in the room, is it possible for you to imagine a diplomatic solution to this conflict? There hasn't been a lot of talk about how to resolve uh, what's going on right now. Um, And that's because Israel is kind of in the midst of providing for its own security and defending itself against this, this terrorist attack. But it's hard to see, I think, for most analysts, how an Israeli invasion of Gaza is going to kind of solve the the conflict that we're thinking of, just kind of broader conflict between um, Israel and Palestinians. Is it possible for you to imagine a diplomatic solution to this? It's a great question, Jeff. Um, and I'm not sure there's actually a bigger question uh, when it comes to like the, 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 let's put it this way, the role of diplomacy and also li- diplomacy's limits, right? I think a lot of people point to uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in, in the broadest sense, as showing the limits of what diplomacy can do, right? Because here you have a, a situation that's so complex, uh, so nuanced, so much you know history, and, and different ways to even think about the conflict. I mean, one of the things I talk about with my students is that you could you could write books about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as a um, a, a battle about territory, about land. Like what we're talking about is actually the division of of you know soil on the ground. You could you could write the same number of books about how this is an ideological, uh, religious based uh, conflict, and it go, the roots go back you know to the beginning of time, right? And 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 neither of those would be wrong, right? So so you have to diplomacy and the approach to this has to be sort of all inclusive in a sense because you have to take on all these complexities and all these different ways of viewing just the simple question of what this conflict is even about. Like just answering that question uh, is kind of is kind of tricky. I. This is the, the worst time to be sort of optimistic about a, a, a diplomatic solution, precisely because we're in the midst of a war. Uh, and I think the sense that both of us have is this is a, a war that's not going to get um, better anytime soon. I think we're going to see a lot of violence, uh, most likely over the next couple of weeks, months, hopefully uh, not, not beyond that. And they, they're able to find some solution. But I will say that over the years, um, there have been a lot of serious attempts and, and successes at getting at least some of the conflict uh, to be in a better spot, right? So we mentioned on the on the podcast the the Camp David Accords with Jimmy Carter, first you know deal between Egypt and Israel. That was a huge deal that a lot of people didn't think could happen. And in fact, Jimmy Carter's advisors before before they before they went to Camp David were telling him, "You you shouldn't do this. This is not going to work. You're not going to get success here, and it's going to be terrible for you politically." Uh, and yet he was able to do it. What that. Camp David Accords did not account for, of course, was the status of the Palestinians. It didn't deal with Jerusalem. It dealt with you know other issues that were important and difficult to resolve, but it didn't deal with the hard the hard questions. Um, there were a number of summits, you know, you know, the Bill Clinton two summits, one of which was successful, one of which uh, wasn't successful, uh, failed partially when they tried to deal with these difficult questions about you know Gaza, the West Bank, Palestinians, what's going to what we're going to do moving forward. Um, in the in the the later 2000s, there have been some, you know, sort of progress made. I mentioned the Trump administration, you know, trying to get a little bit of, of progress made. At the end of the day, I think a lot of analysts that look at this region say that there is a deal that can be made. 
it has to it has to deal with getting back to what we talk about is the you know sort of pre nineteen sixty seven borders. Um, you can go and look up you know sort of what the maps look like in that in that period of time. There is a a framework that over time um, sort of all sides have agreed to at least parts of it. Um, and so some the optimistic types like me say that if we get the right sort of configuration of you know the stars being aligned with political parties with the correct leadership with an appetite internationally to pursue this that there is a deal that could theoretically be reached and it's because that it's been worked on for so long that we have found sort of a a very small you know zone of possible agreement to use negotiation terms but that zone does exist so i don't think it's out of the question to think that a, a diplomatic solution here um is is not possible that would result in some type of you know sort of two state solution um but at the moment, looking at it, you, you you think you know this is the farthest thing from any type of reality, given that we're we're actively uh, fighting. So, um, I'm optimistic about the future. I'm, I'm very pessimistic at the moment, but I do think that there is the the potential for, um, and it would require very strong leadership. Let's be honest. You know, it would require you know somebody like a Jimmy Carter coming along and saying, "I'm willing to put you know my domestic uh, political." life, my political capital on the line to try to get this done. I think Bill Clinton deserves a lot of of respect for trying to do a similar type of thing. It required leadership on the Palestinian side. It required leadership on Hamas, you know, the PLO. It required leadership on Israel's part, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Iran. Like this is, this is all the SARS have to align for this to work out. But I am optimistic because there has been progress made and I, I see the potential for a deal, um, a negotiated settlement, a peaceful resolution to this somewhere down the line. Okay. Well, I think we should leave it there. Thanks everyone for joining us. You can reach us at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com or go to speakpipe.com slash cheap talk to let us know what we should be talking about. And Marcus, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. We'll see you next week.